sitting on the porch with Georgie T. Hearing tales of Tennessee. Joining me as the first guest in the second season of the Tales of Tennessee podcast is someone whose musical exploits put him firmly in the Premier League of songwriters with the latest of his multiple number one songs hitting the top spot on the 16th of October. He is Billy Montana, co-writer of an array of hits, including Lee Bryce's Memory I Don't Mess With. Thank you so much for joining me, Billy, and welcome to the podcast. I am excited to be here, Georgie. Thank you. Hi. So I believe you're from, you are from and have got quite a musical family, um, but can you give us just a little bit of a brief overview of your childhood, your sort of formative years and, and how you ended up in Nashville? Yeah, um, I actually, my, my dad and stepmom still play music. They still play live. Um, they're in a band called the McNett Country Band, and they've always they've always performed. But part of uh, I didn't grow up in my dad's house. Uh, I grew up in you know my my mother uh, took my brothers and me, and we uh, grew up in my grandparents. But um, uh, my dad, when we would go spend time with him, was always playing music, and. Uh, it comes from his background, like his mom and dad absolutely loved music. So that's where he got it. He just, uh, he got the bug early and passed it on to us. And um, so we used to, it was that type of thing, very um, Americana sort of, where you'd sit around the living room and everybody would play songs and sing together and play mandolin, guitar, bass guitar, whatever. So, um I thought it was the coolest thing when I was a kid watching my dad on stage singing songs. And, uh, you know, I think that's obviously had a huge influence on me that uh, um, I wanted to do something like that. And I think ultimately he has lived vicariously through me because he always um, feel I feel like he ha had a dream of being a, you know, a songwriter coming to Nashville and performing music like I have an opportunity to do so. Uh, it's fun. He's he's way into it, and uh, and uh, I don't take take it lightly that without his influence, I might not be here. But what an awesome thing for for any family to be able to do, you know, to sit down to have that uh, that passion in common, so you can just all be involved in the same thing and be understanding and supportive of each other, whether it's songwriting or performing or, or whatever. I mean, it's such a, such exactly. a brilliant thing, especially with something like music, which is so powerful to so many people exactly. as well. I, and actually, now that you mention it, I'm, you, you reminded me of a story where I went for a walk with him when things weren't going so great. And, you know, my wife and I were struggling to make ends meet. Um, already had three children and I really didn't have a lot on the horizon uh, in the way of potential income from songwriting and performing and so I remember walking with my dad in the neighborhood that we lived in here in Nashville and I was like man I'm, I'm really thinking of growing up and giving up you know and uh, his response you know you would think that a father would say yes yeah, son it's time you settle and but his response was um, you can't do that You've come too far. You know too many people. You're doing too much. And it was, I was like, wow, uh, man, I, you know, he, he was just so encouraging about mm -hmm. it. And so, uh, 
he wasn't wrong. I mean, I'm glad I stuck with it. It, it wasn't easy, you know, when we first came to Nashville. It took us a long time to um, establish ourselves as, you know, in, in the business and, and be able to make some income at it. But, um, man, it's it's really been a blessing. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I, for one, envy people who know from the word go what they're going to do with their life. And, you know, they're very focused and and that's just what they're going to do and they work towards it and it's just sort of one logical step to another and and perhaps in a more regular career it's easier to do that because you know if you say okay I want to go and be a policeman you sort of you start at the bottom and you work your way through whereas with with songwriting with so events is my passion and country music is my passion but it's it took 34 years to realize that that was actually what I want to do what I think I'm supposed to be doing and it's blooming hard work to get there and it's a lot of luck as well and it is not just a case of starting at the bottom and you know work working your way up so um I think it does pay off if you can just get through those really awful times and yeah you know you're going for the Tesco value rather than the 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 M Marks and Spencers premium brand stuff I think well obviously it's paid off um and it's it's been a fantastic well fantastic for all of us fans of country music that you have stuck with it so uh thank you thank you for that um what was the first song you ever wrote do you remember uh i don't really remember specifically i remember some old songs i uh i wrote one called watercolor rose that some friends of mine in college remind me of because i probably wrote it for my then girlfriend who's now my (laughs) wife Uh, but uh you know i think that's how uh here's the thing uh, there's a couple of things I think that kind of, so specifically, I don't remember. I know I have the lyric, but there's probably no way I could remember the melody because that's probably 5,000 songs ago, you yeah. know? So, but um, when I was about 13 years old, I think, and I think my mother had to drive me to my first concert and it was the Carpenters. And um, I love the Carpenters. Absolutely love the Carpenters. I did too, you know, and Mac Davis opened for them in front of 17,000 people. And he sat on a stool and had 17,000 people eating out of the palm of his hand. So when I'm 13 years old and I'm thinking, man, that that may be the coolest thing I've ever seen. I think that, uh, you know, to know that he wrote songs, let's say he wrote the, you know, in the ghetto that Elvis uh, had a hit with. And, um, I think that alerted me to where the artist doesn't always write the song. Mm. And so then I started paying attention to liner notes on LPs and, you know, seeing who wrote the songs that became of more interest to me. So then I think I started when I was probably 16, 17 years old, I started writing myself. Um, and you had, out. you had a band yourself. Yeah, my, my brother and I were in a five-piece band, and we put a couple of originals in there. I don't think any of them were mine. My older brother, Kyle, is was also a huge influence on me musically. He's just a couple years older, but he seemed to have his finger on the pulse of things that were really going to be something special. Uh, for example, very early on, he was all about the Eagles, and... Um, you know, of course, they blew up to be one of the greatest bands in history. And yeah. but he he had a feel for those types of things, and so he was mainly the writer of the band that we were in, and we played mostly mostly covers. It was it was kind of you know a rock band, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you re- you recently, well, 
I say recently, back in February, February, you released um, a version of Night Shift, which obviously was released previously by John Pardy. Mm -hmm. Is this a resurgence of your band? No. Or the start of something? No, it's a solo. It's just a solo thing to kind of do. We uh, thought that it'd be cool to do songwriter versions of, Mm. you know, songs that might be familiar to. Absolutely the listener and so it's just more like my interpretation of songs that have been covered by other my songs that have been covered by other recording artists when I when I was writing the question I was thinking how do I term it because you haven't covered it because it's it's your song so I guess it's mm. they yeah. well it's you know your <laughs> version I guess isn't it we can't yeah, say my, how about that yeah my, my interpretation yeah no, it's brilliant. But, uh, but no, I'm not. I don't have any aspirations to be an artist or anything. But I mean, we still play live. I'm playing the Bluebird Cafe mm. tomorrow night. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain energy that comes with being able to play your songs publicly and getting that kind of feedback that you don't get if it's if people are just hearing it on the radio, which is awesome. We love that, obviously. But again, there's something about the energy of a live connection uh i i think it resonates with me as a writer you know that it's like wow people you know they're singing along they know this song it Mm. is or they'll come up afterwards and say i was such i was doing something when this song came out and it had this effect on me and honestly that is the reason i got into songwriting is because i was moved by songs that way i assume you are because you're you know you're doing what you're doing and um so we were we were very influenced by the songs, and so to be able to pass that along is a, a special gift, I think. Yeah. So I think we're over in the UK. We're a little bit sort of behind Nashville in terms of the songwriter rounds, and they are actually now becoming more popular. Um, but it's slightly. I think it seems to work slightly differently over here. There's a lot more singer songwriters. Um, so mm-hmm. you don't sort of have the the production of songs for other people to cut um, gotcha. as you do over there. Um, but we have, uh, so I run, I run a festival, obviously, um, and as part of our kind of brand awareness, we've recently started doing um, some little, some small songwriter nights. And we had our first one last Wednesday and we had two girls um, who are actually song, predominantly songwriters. Um, okay. And it's just so gorgeous to be able to sit there and listen to them sing their songs. And yes, the vocals might not be absolutely how they would be on a recorded production of it and whatever, but it's their, it's their interpretation. It's their heart and soul that have, that they've written into these songs. And I just absolutely love that. Um, And and like you say, seeing everybody be so moved by what they've written yeah when you're i feel like for me like i went to the bluebird you know that was my first experience with a songwriter night probably back in 1986 i would Mm -hmm. say and i came away you know as a songwriter i came away completely inspired and completely depressed inspired because it was like wow i would give anything to do that and depressed because thinking of like wow i would never be able to write songs that you know, that good. And um, so, but I do think when you're getting to the root, um, I think an audience really appreciates that. Like you're saying about hearing where the song originated, you Mm. know, 
there's there's something about the uh, genuineness of that yeah i feel like that yeah. is appealing to an audience absolutely and i think it is it's almost quite a tough sell over here to start with because people haven't experienced it yet but the more of these that happen and they are they are popping up there's a few in london there's one um a regular night over in birmingham and obviously we'll do we're only going to do kind of mini series so we'll do sort of three at a time and then have a gap and do another three um Mm -hmm. and i think the more people sit and listen to them and at the festival we have songwriter workshops so we have local people that can apply to come and be in the workshop and they so they play their song and they get feedback um from industry professionals and obviously they've got all the crowd there listening and I think that really does engage people a lot more with the music and then they're more likely to follow those singer songwriters because they've heard that one song and to see then how it develops into the you know the final final cut is um is really interesting and I think the the audience can then feel a lot more invested in it I guess because they feel they've been on that journey with with that artist so can uh, you I, I agree and, and I think I think you're doing it right you know by doing the three and then taking time doing the three because I, I try to tell people that are trying to start one it's like the the biggest challenge I think for a writer's night is to educate people on what it even is and you know well, so what is a writer's yeah. night and that's what you're talking about is like well our people around Nashville you know like it's been 35 40 years they've been doing it but um where you are it's like you said i mean there's there's a bit of well we, we just don't even know what it is and so yeah. but so it's a lot of word of mouth i think yeah. that has to <clears throat> that has to grow a, a, a writer's night yeah we're really lucky so the venue we're using is just it's just gorgeous it's very quirky it's only small so we'll probably get about 40 people seated um so it's quite intimate and you know we'll have an interval so the artists will come off and have a chat with with people then you know you can have pictures and talk to them at the end and ask questions and stuff so hopefully um you know it will inspire people to to come along in the future once you know their friend goes oh yeah that was a really good night so yeah fingers crossed um can you talk us through the songwriting process in Nashville because I've interviewed several UK artists who've been over there to write and they've just been completely blown away with the professionalism and the um efficiency of how it all works and they say boom you go in the room you're in there you get writing straight away whereas over here you know you might sit down and oh well I can't really think about something think think of something and it kind of all the process goes on a lot longer and it's a lot less sort of intense and and business-like how how does it work that's a that's a good observation right there is that uh and I, I it was Brett James I think in a documentary that I saw fairly recently that um, Nashville Songwriters Association put out called It All Begins With a Song. Mm. And he said oh, that, that's brilliant. You know, yeah, yeah if, if you don't, if you don't treat it like a business, um, you're, it's probably not going to happen for you. Like you have to be very, here's the thing is that I feel like you have to learn how to be creative on demand, like even when you're not in the mood. And that's an interesting thing, I think, for people on the outside looking in is don't you have to be inspired? And it's like, yeah, to some degree, but you're also, you know, there's people hanging their careers on the songs that you're writing, including yourself. But I mean, you know, your publisher who's trusting you to 
put your best foot forward every day um, and, you know, create something that's potentially going to be, because let's face it, it's a business. So they want you to create something that's potentially going to be an income maker for them. uh, And and we want to, because then it's an income maker for us as well. So, um, you know, like after I leave this call, um, I have an 11 11 o'clock appointment. We'll probably... I'm guessing based on the young ladies that I'm writing with, they're they're pretty fast uh, when it comes to coming up with ideas and and having musical ideas and being prepared. I have a feeling we'll be finished by three o'clock in the afternoon, and we'll probably have a pretty darn good song, you know. And so that's the efficiency of it is that you learn, and that's not the the, the it's not more songs, it's quality songs, but you learn how to write a quality song fairly quickly, (laughs) you know? My next question was going to be, you know, do you feel that because it is so businesslike, it does sort of stifle your creativity and how do you, how do you keep that fresh? How do you keep that creativity on demand? I think, I think a lot of times you have to step away for periods of time, at least I do, um, to kind of refill the creative cup. I read a, a long time ago, um, I went to visit an A&R representative and play some songs for her. She, her name was Mary Martin, and I, she was either at RCA or Columbia Records, and she had a sign behind her desk that said, you can't write if you don't read. And mm. I thought that was really good advice, you know, that you have to find inspiration in in the things around you but you know that's also another thing that that you learn how to do is basically keep your radar uh open for potential words that sound good together or a title or a concept or something like that you know so i i would say most of us songwriters our phones now used to be you know we might carry a little notepad or something to jot things down so we wouldn't forget because there's so many things going on but you know, uh, in our phones, you know, I have a lot of voice memos or notes where I'll just write something. I don't even know what it means. You know, it's just three words that sound good together or something. And then you bring that into a write. And that's what's cool is that um, I'm sure your folks uh, have uh, observed that uh, there's a lot of co-writing that takes place here in Nashville. And the advantage of that is hopefully two heads are better than one and three heads are better than two. You know, it is that if I'm not feeling a hundred percent or, uh, or whatever, hopefully my co-writer is. And if he's not, maybe the other co-writer is, you know what I'm saying? It's like somebody is going to bring it one day, uh, that's going to be able to come up with something cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in my, in my more recent years, I have stressed out less about that um, and actually honestly written better songs because of it. When I put the pressure on that I have to get something, um, I have a tendency to not get something. But when I just go, hey, let's just have a good day, write the best song we can. And uh, I I think the end result has been a greater percentage of better songs, at least songs that I like. And other particular people who you would choose to work with who are, for example, really good at lyrics or really good at the, you know, finding a hook or the actual tune, or is it generally, you know, everyone's pretty good at both sort of aspects of it? Well, I I, I think generally everyone's pretty good at both aspects of it, but 
like as much as I can, let's say, write a melody, I, you know, the music that I grew up on was very poetic. Um, you know, Jackson Brown, it was, it was introspective. Um, so I have a tendency toward lyric, you know, I just, that's my, so I, I, you know, my publisher recognizes that because they hear every song I write. I might write 150 songs in a year. And so they can hear in those 150 songs and, you know, with the other writers, they, they know what the strengths and weaknesses are of the other writers. So, I mean, I think the perfect scenario is having someone who, even though they can be great at a lyric, they are really over the top with melody great, you know? Yeah. And so to get somebody like that with somebody that's over the top great with a lyric, you're going to end up with the best product. And when you are writing, do you go into it with a completely open mind as to who it might be, who it might end up for? Or do you sort of start writing and then think, oh, you know, this would sound really good if Lee Bryce, for example, sang this song or and then does that change how you work that song because you've kind of that's clicked in your mind and you thought, oh, actually, that would sound really great if if so and so sung it. It's a little of it's a little of both of those. I think um, I haven't had a ton of success, you know, saying, "Hey, let's write a song for so and so." Yeah. But you see, I've had some success doing that. Like we wrote "Suds in the Bucket." Yeah. We wrote for Leanne Womack because right. the the pitch sheet that was telling us telling the songwriting and publishing community what was going on in the studios said. Leanne Womack wants an up-tempo, traditional-sounding country song. And so my co-writer, Janai, and I wrote an up-tempo, traditional-sounding country song. We pitched it to Womack's people, and uh, it didn't mean it wasn't a good song. It meant it, they just felt like it, maybe it wasn't right. And so, But my publisher stuck with it and pitched it to Sarah Evans' camp, yeah. you know? And so they liked it and ended up, you know, it's maybe the biggest hit I've been a part of. And so... In fact, it is. I know it is. Mm. Um, so it, we did write that specifically for Leanne, but it ended up somewhere else, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I just honestly, I try to write the best song uh, I can, and then let it end up where it's supposed to end up. Mm. Um, if you're in the room with an artist, not so much. You're trying to write for the artist. You yeah. say, "Hey, what, what gaps do you need in your next project, and uh, how can we fill those? You know, what can we?" Yeah. So my next question was, do you envisage the production elements to a song when you're writing it or do you kind of just do your bit and then it's sort of part of the journey of the song that you then see how it develops when it's picked up by an artist and they start to add the production bits or are you thinking, oh, this would sound really cool if you, I don't know, added a fiddle in there or whatever it might be? I think when we're first, you know, I think we do uh envision the production of it to the point of the demo like what we think would be best for the song and the best representation of the song but you know once that's done once the demo's finished and and then the song is out there i mean the the, the demo's out there and you're trying to get it recorded uh you know i take my hands off it and let the artist do i've for the most part the master recordings have exceeded uh, the demos there's been a couple times where that you know people have asked you know are you ever disappointed in them in the master and it's sort of like well 
I mean, they liked the song enough to cut it. And, um, you know, even if I'm not a big fan of the production, if that's what they heard, you know, for themselves, they have to do that. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have to, the recording artist has to make the song their own. Yeah. Um, or else it won't carry on, you know? So, but, but, the, but the truth is most of my, but from my experience, most of the master recordings have exceeded my expectations. And I don't think everybody can say that. So mm. I don't think every songwriter can say that. I think I, I've, I've heard some that are just like, man, the demo beats that. Yeah. But uh, I've been blessed. Yeah. And so when, when you've finished writing a song, you've done right. Okay. That's it. You've recorded the demo, what have you. Do you, do you get the feel that that is going to be a hit? So take memory. I don't mess with, for example, that is your most recent number one. Um, when you wrote that and you knew Lee Bryce was going to record it, did you know that that was going to make number one? Because obviously it was, it was released back in 2020. I think it was, wasn't it? And it's, it's obviously taken um, the best part of a year to, to get to number one, which I'm assuming is all to do with airplay um, Mm -hmm. and and things like that. Did you know that it was going to be a special song? Uh, I knew it was going to be a special song based on you know that we love the song like like brian davis and lee had that chorus Hmm. and brian and i were on lee's bus because that's how you have to get with recording artists now just to be able to spend much quality time with them is to go out on the road so uh and lee is the hardest working entertainer i know um and he ensures if you're taking time away from home to be out on the road, he really dedicates and devotes himself to, you know, creating music. I, I don't know anyone who's as passionate about it as he is. And he's still, you know, he's been doing it for years and, and he's still passionate about it. But all that to say, they played me the chorus and I was like, I freaking love that chorus. Like, I love the rhyme scheme. I loved what it said. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that particular right, I was like, <laughs> I thinking to myself, it's like, you better come up with something, you know, because this is too good to waste, kind of. And um, so I kind of hunkered down and, and uh, you know, they, they were talking about production issues and stuff like that. And then I kind of spit out the first verse, pretty, almost all of the first verse. And, and um I loved it because Lee, he didn't recite it. He just kind of got this look in his eye and he took the guitar from me and he sang it like mm-hmm. what I had just and uh, what I had just spit out. And he and uh, so I knew I was like, yep, he, he digs it. And it's it was awesome. So that was a really special thing. But to, to, to go back to your question is like, I don't ever know, like, no uh in quotations that it's going to be a hit i know if i love the song and if i think it's a great song but there's so many ingredients to a hit you know like all great songs do not become hits and all hits are not great songs Mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of that you know there's a little bit of the hype of the artist um um the strength of the record company that's going to put it out the whims of the public um 
you know, which is constantly changing. What What is it that's going to resonate with the public? The time of year. Who knows? It's all of these things that, you know, we don't know None. what, you know, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, after when, when Memory I Don't Mess With first came out, it, it came on the chart at number 37, had a bunch of really important radio stations with big markets playing it and... It was like, wow, it looks like we're going to have a fast rising hit. Well, then it sank back into the 40s and just hung out there for a really long time. It took almost a year to get to number one. So it was like, I think when people heard it, they loved it. It just took, it just took time for them to hear it. And why, what, what kind of kick-started it rising back up again? Was the one thing that you can attribute that to? Or like you say, is it just the fact that it's taken that, amount of time for people to hear it and, and request it etc that i think it's the latter i mean i think it's like the persistence of a record company the persistence of the artist uh to um make sure people know about it mm. um and then you know if they can get it to where people are hearing it which is honestly it's not until it's in the top 15 you know <laughs> when people are really starting to hear it and that's when a record company knows probably if they have something or they don't have something and if it starts to you know get some upward mobility on the chart and get some what we call reaction from the public when it's getting around when people have an opportunity to hear it a little bit more that's when a record company says yeah i think we have something and then and they'll start putting the the guns behind it to keep it moving up. Yeah. I think this is also fascinating because obviously it, it works differently over here in the UK, especially with country music at the moment, because you know, we're still a very small scene. Um and it's just it just works so differently. So I find it absolutely fascinating hearing hearing all of this. Do you have a a favorite song that you've written? I guess I do. Um, I have a lot of favorites, but um, there's a song I wrote that actually Martina McBride recorded back in 2007 called House of a Thousand Dreams. Mm. And, um, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about the efficiency and, you know, how quickly a song can come together. I might write four hours today and come out with a song, but um, that song took, I say it took, it was the, took me the longest to write of any song because I had a t I had um, the music, um, uh, Ilya Tashinsky, who's an amazing studio musician. He he's originally from uh, Russia, but <clears throat> and I used to work with him when he was in a a recording band from Russia back in the late '90s. Um, but he's become a stalwart, award-winning studio musician here in Nashville uh, over over the years, and so he and I back in the late 90s we were working on music and I absolutely love the music and so I was like I don't want to squander <laughs> this melody on an ordinary title I want an extraordinary title and so I would play go back to it occasionally play it it's not the only song I worked on for 13 months you know you're yeah. writing songs every day but I would constantly go back to it and say what what could this be and then uh, I just somewhere got the title House of a Thousand Dreams and uh, I brought it. I brought that title and the music to the girl I wrote "Suds in the Bucket" with Janai, and she loved it. And so then we worked another several days, uh, as I recall, on the lyric. And I think why I consider it 
perhaps my favorite song I've been a part of is because it most accurately depicts the, you know, my, my story. Like when we came to Nashville in 1989 and, you know, I was delivering pizzas for Domino's Pizza and, you know, we were struggling and I was loading trucks and doing all kinds of stuff that wasn't what I came here to do. And, um, you know, my wife was, you know, she just wanted to be a wife and a mother and she was having to work, you know, and in order to make ends meet and all those types of things that you go through. So... Uh, this song, I think, and, and our kids, uh, kids just want to be loved and have a, have a good environment to be raised in. And um, so they were oblivious to the fact that we really didn't have a lot in the way of tangibles. And so that's what that song addresses. The first verse is the father being frustrated by the circumstances. The second verse is the mother the mother's perspective, the wife's perspective of trying to make the most of what they have. And then the last verse is the kid's perspective. And it's like, they're just happy. They, they, they. So I think that's my thing about that song is that it just does for me, it captured very well the, um, you know, that part of my life. Well, that has moved us very smoothly onto the second part of the podcast, which basically is just talking about Nashville and Tennessee and trying to give the listener some, you know, tips and recommendations. So when they head back out there, you know, we've got other things to, to, to go and look at and enjoy. So when, what were your first thoughts when you moved to Nashville? We had had, I'd had the advantage of coming down, uh, a few times prior to moving here permanently. So I had a little bit of a feel for, shall we say, the lay of the land mm. and, the, and the way the songwriting business worked. And honestly, I also had an advantage of, because I was a recording artist, I had a record deal on Warner Brothers with a band called Billy Montana and the Long Shots, yeah. which was maybe the band you were referencing earlier. I, I, you know, And we, we had a deal on Warner Brothers for three years, which kind of allowed me to learn how the songwriting process worked here kind of you know gave me a heads up on what the town was like and all that so there was I definitely had some advantage that, that not everyone does and I, I actually had a publishing deal prior to moving here permanently which is also something that not a lot of folks have an opportunity to experience but um uh, so I, uh, ha coming down when, when we first came here, uh, I did errantly think that I was going to take, take the town by storm. Like I was, I was a big fish in a small pond in upstate New yeah. York where I came from. And when I got down here, the reality of being a small fish in a very large ocean, uh, struck, struck me, reality struck. And, um, so, you know, we, we, we had to hunker down and, and uh, do all those types of things that I was mentioning before, you know, just to kind of put bread on the table. But uh, I, I always loved the town, honestly, um, even when the business wasn't being what I felt like being very kind to me and uh, accepting my work. There's um, really good people in the mm. music business. Yeah. And I think they... 
you know, the ones that believed in me when I didn't believe in myself, Diana Mayer and Brent Mayer. Uh, Brent produced all the Judd records, um, wrote a bunch of the Judd's so songs in the 80s. And um, his daughter, Diana, ran their publishing company and had a great relationship with them. Still friends with them, uh, even though we haven't done business for the last several years. But, you know, there, there's things like that that keep you going. Yeah. when the chips are down and that's what you need is somebody that's kind of an encouragement to you and keep you at least i did you know keep you keep you on track yeah i'm a terrible self-promoter <laughs> so, so i need somebody to carry that banner for me and yeah. uh you know and and the town itself how sort of what are the main changes that you've seen throughout your time living in nashville um obviously it's got more touristy. Um, it's got a lot more popular. Um, is that is that a good thing? Do you still love? Do you still love the place? I still love it, and I, and I just made this comment last night. It's so funny because my son and I uh, went to the uh, football game last night, and uh, you know you're looking at you're across the river and you're looking at the skyline, and I just I, I shook my head and I was like, dude, I love this town. I mean, I still love this town, and from for me, it's cool being a part of a community that is thriving and has become what it's become. And I think, I think you mentioned the tourism. There's obviously there's negative things that come with everything. It's very rare that everything is all good and it's very rare that everything is all bad. I mean, there's, <laughs> it's a little of both. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you put up with more traffic, um, uh, I don't know if, you know, crime goes up probably when there's more people, just because there's more people, those types of things. But overall, I think the advantages of the, of the, uh, the positives outweigh the negatives in that we have a, the, the folks that we were sitting with were from the other city, you know, from Buffalo and Buffalo, New York. And they were like, we've been down here for four days and this is, has been awesome. And that's what I want to hear. I want to yeah. hear that the town is treating them well. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot to do. That's the thing about a thriving community. There's a lot to do. You yeah. never run out of stuff to do. And uh, entertainment is great. Ever since Nashville has been successfully branded as Music City, I think it's elevated our profile. And can um, you still, do you still go out and enjoy music? Because I know, you know, sometimes... And especially I find when I'm in the last run up to the festival and I'm so busy and all I've thought about is music and, you know, how to put this this event on that I sometimes forget that I'm doing it because I love it. And actually, I need to sort of take a step back and plug myself into some Lady A or the Chicks or, you know, some music that I absolutely love and think this is why I'm this is why I'm doing it and almost remind myself that I love listening to music and to country music are you still able to to go out and enjoy listening to music and not feel that it's just a busman's holiday yeah um i'm like i'm more like you i have to i have to remind myself mm. um of what a gift it is sometimes um because we are immersed in it you know and um so i don't uh i've made it a point honestly to try to go out and be supportive of some of the younger recording artists that I'm working with, or, you know, we, my wife and I went to see the Rolling Stones a couple of weeks ago and it was awesome wow. because 
just a reminder of, you know, exactly what you said. I mean, this is why we got into it is because yeah. we love it. And um, I know that's, that might sound funny to some of the listeners, but it's just, it's true that it's kind of because you're around it all the time. And so you kind of almost begin to take it for granted. Take for granted. And you, yeah. You need to set back and go, man, um, let's, let's remember why we fell in love with this in the first place. Yeah. But absolutely. don't you think it's that way with just about everything? Yeah. No, I mean, and I think the the pandemic for me, uh, and I know for a lot of people over here especially, has kind of really reinforced the fact that we love it, you know. And when we were not able to go and sit at a live gig, the first gig back, you're like, oh, my goodness, thank God. Thank goodness that I'm sitting here and I'm watching these artists playing music. And it's just like, it's like a breath of fresh air and just a relief that thank goodness we're back. We're back to this. And I think it sort of really hits home how much you miss it when you, when you don't have it. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be your kind of go-to recommendations if somebody you knew was coming down to town um, just for a long weekend or something, what would you say that they really have have to go to? I mean, obviously there's the Ryman, the Opry and the country music hall of fame and things like that. Do you have any sort of hidden gems that you can share? Well, I mean, for me, it's always the songwriter venues yeah. like we were talking about. And so yeah. there's places like the Listening Room Cafe, the Bluebird yeah. Cafe, um, Puckett's Grocery. You know, there's, you know, for me, those are the venues that I um, gravitate to. Yeah. But, but just like, you know, because what we were saying before, I mean, that's how I like to hear, mu- hear music. So the... I'm not as much into the up and down Broadway uh, with the bands covering country music, but, but that's, I'm not taking anything away from that because that the young, young men that were sitting next to me at the football game last night, that's what they did. And they freaking loved it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, if that's your thing, it's, it's amazing. The, The musicians are, you know, incredible and the singers are incredible. It's just, it's just amazing. But, um, that's that's not my jam. So I have a tendency to go to, to try to go to some of those more, the more uh, organic music venues. What would be your absolute favorite writers' night? Would it be some? Would it be something at the Bluebird, for example? I would say Bluebird number one. Yeah. Listening rooms have been doing a good job, so that might I might put that at number two. Mm. Some some places have gone by the wayside. Uh, Douglas Corner Cafe was wonderful, but uh, they weren't able to keep their doors open. So. Mm. Um, but there, there will be others. Uh, but yeah, and I, I think the reason I'm mentioning those two is because those are the places that you're, the audience is completely silent yeah. and completely engaged yeah. uh, with. But even some of those other venues that you mentioned, for example, you know, if you do go to the Country Music Hall of Fame, they have like songwriter um special songwriter events so if you look at their calendar you know you can go to a theater called the ford theater that's in the country music hall of fame you might you might catch a songwriter doing a bluebird type Mm. event uh you know an hour-long show where they're just talking about i've done it we just play songs and tell stories behind them and they call it stories behind the song so you know I would hunt for those types of things if I yeah. were if I were coming to town. Yeah. You know, for I've never been able to get into the Bluebird, but I've been to the listening room, went to a Song Suffragettes um, 
round at the listening room and it was just it was just brilliant and you do it's almost a bit overwhelming because everybody is so focused on yeah. the music yes. um and uh, and you're really understanding the stories behind the songs and everything um and i think that's that's awesome what about places to places to eat what would be your um, kind of go-to recommendation you know, barbecue is good. Martin's Barbecue started about five miles from where my house is, uh, yeah. Nolansville. Uh, and so I've always kind of, I've always gravitated to that. But Edley's Barbecue is good too. And that's kind of like the home thing. People talk about hot chicken. So there's Hattie B's, which, um, but for me, it's Prince's. Prince's, I think, yeah. was the original. And um so that would be my go-to in the hot chicken department. If you want like, you know, a cool vibe that's not very country music mm -hmm. uh, related, but it's called, my wife and I just went before the Rolling Stones concert was a place called Pinewood Social. And the drinks, the mixed drinks were really interesting and the food was really good. And so I, I just told my son last night because we walked past it to go to the football game. And I was like, man, your mom and I had a great experience there so that was good there's a restaurant called adele's right downtown that i really like um obviously know. it's not just country music in in nashville mm -mm. is the is the sort of non-country scene growing or do you think it will always stay as you know country music city with other well, bits as i well? mean i think it's probably growing you know uh to some degree but again with that branding of the city as mm. music city um i i think they uh, whoever it was you know the powers that be were just like you know what we do music we ought to embrace music yeah absolutely ought, they've done a good ought, job in it mm -hmm. i mean there's amazing studios and and um yeah so yeah and what about cool um wider Tennessee if you were if you just had a couple of days off and you wanted to go somewhere that wasn't too far but you know still in Tennessee do you have a sort of go-to go-to place Lynchburg where the Jack Daniel distillery is is it's a really good tour they used to be free they charge for it now but it's still very interesting and yeah. I think worth it and it's just a really pretty drive it's only about an hour and 15 minutes away by car and um you know, I, I think you'll see some of the countryside and it's, yeah. uh, it's and also if you're, just if you're going off on a, on a road trip to Lynchburg, for example, what would be the number one song that you would play on your radio as you're heading over to, to Lynchburg? I might play, gosh, I don't know, some kind of, some rock and road song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now you mentioned earlier that you were working with some sort of young up and coming artists. Do you mm. have anyone that in particular that we should be looking out for, um, sort of over the next few years? Um, young man named Troy Cartwright. Okay. He's on Warner brothers records. Uh, he just put out an EP, uh, of five songs on Friday. It came out and, um, he, uh, Brandon hood is producing Troy yeah. and Brandon and Troy and I wrote three of the five songs that are on that EP. And I'm really proud of those songs. I think they're oh, really awesome. cool songs. So my fingers crossed for him, young man named Ben Gallagher, um, uh, is making good music. Um, 
a good young man, Ian Munsick. Uh, just a uh, really super cool dude. Um, just yeah. really good humans. You know, these, these guys that I'm talking about are like, they're just great people on top of being really talented musicians and songwriters. So yeah, there's a, there's a bevy of them and it's exciting. Uh, yeah. Got my fingers crossed for them all because they, I, I know how hard they work. And yeah, absolutely. Well, Billy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for joining me. It's been an honor and I've loved every minute of it. So thank you. Me too, Georgie. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Tales of Tennessee podcast with me, Georgie T. You can keep up to date with the podcast by following us at talesoftennessee.podbean.com or by following all of our social media channels for the Tennessee Fields Festival. The handle is at TNFieldsFest on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. You can also follow me, Georgie T, on Instagram at the underscore accidental underscore everything. We'd love to hear from you. So don't forget, you can email us at talesoftennessee at yahoo.com. And as always, thanks go to Francis and Archie Ween for providing the jingles for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Sitting on the porch with Georgie T. Hearing tales of Tennessee.